Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturbins. It's an important notion that as we encounter truth, everybody say truth. This morning I had a, a, a phone call with a pastor and he had called me and he was asking me about a story in scripture. He says, a woman with the issue of blood. And he says, do you have any thoughts on that? And I said, yeah, there's a, in one of the two, it's either in Mark or Luke. And it's, it turns out it's in Luke. In the book of Luke, there's this story is this woman is, has been stricken with, uh, the King James says, an issue of blood. It was a bleeding disease. And under Jewish um, uh, Jewish law, she was unclean and unfit. She couldn't be around the crowd. She would be put out and pushed aside. But this had gone on for years and years and years, and she had heard this rabbi was coming her way, and her thought was, if I could just press through the crowd, if I could just touch the hem of his garment. And that's an important notion to note what she did not want to do. She did not want to stop the crowd. She did not want to bring attention to herself. As we leave the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, if you've attended New Hope for any time, you've heard this reference again and again and again. There are three words that are used in Genesis chapter 3 that describe what led to the crash and burn of mankind. There are many of you across the congregation, I could stop right now and say shout out those three words, but these three words happen. And I want you to, to get and understand the story of Scripture because it launches from Genesis 3 and then this thread of hope and rescue. I use the word redemption, but still, that, that, word, that word of redemption, I'm coming to rescue and redeem and bring out everything in you. God said that I had put in you. That's what redemption is about. It begins there, but those three words are, it says, we were deceived we were afraid, and so we hid. We were deceived, we were afraid, and so we hid. So many times we studied those words. As a matter of fact, if I had to pick a single sermon that I feel I could preach every week, and there would be something yet unfolding out of it for people, it would be that sermon. Because at the heart of every one of us are still the whisper of that same serpent that slithered into the garden, he deceives us as to who we are and God's intentions toward us. Once that deception happens, then we're fearful. Once we're fearful, then we hide from each other. Said they were naked and not ashamed, but now they clothed themselves with the leaves of a fig tree and they hid from each other and from God. Beloved, that's the problem for humanity. And they left the garden saying, I don't want you to see, that is, you human, on our relationships, and I can't let him near. And it says, so they hid. And, and at the core of everything I am about, and I believe the, the message of, of the gospel and redemption is about, if the problem of mankind is that we hide from each other and from God, then the fix of that is to send someone who can help us unhide. The word truth, aletheia, literally means unhidden. And so it makes sense that when Jesus shows up on the planet, John chapter 1 verse 14 says, We beheld the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, full of grace and unhiddenness. 
And so Jesus goes everywhere he goes. You can finish the remaining 20 chapters of the book of John, and you'll find in John chapter 2, he walks into the temple and he unhides a worship system that is being hidden by the Pharisees and the priests, and, and he turns over tables and he says, you will not hide the provision and the possibilities of the presence of God from the people who need him, and he resets the button. In John chapter 3, he enters a conversation with a religious philosopher named Nicodemus, and he unhides the truth of the power of the Spirit of God that will come and reside in the hearts of man. In John chapter 4, my favorite perhaps chapter in the Bible, it is the one place where the word worship is used ten times. It is the one place in the Bible where God in the flesh tells us what worship is. There's not another place where God in the flesh, I'm qualifying that, tells us what worship is. But here Jesus speaks to a woman in the middle of the day in a remote place at a well by itself. She was an outcast. She was pushed aside. And he, and he began to speak to her and open things to her. And it lands in John chapter 4, verse 23. It says, the hope for you is worship. And those that worship will worship in spirit and in, here it comes, unhiddenness. I could keep going because John is my favorite book of the Bible. I could go to John chapter 5 and how he unhides a man that was lame from birth at a pool that would move and stir and he hoped to get in but he had no help. And Jesus unhides the possibilities that he can have healing and he needs to quit staring and being fixated on what he thinks is the only source of himself. And it says he lifts his eyes and he looks on Jesus. The poetry could not be any more penetrating. As he looks away from where he suspects and only knows that his hope can come from, and suddenly he meets the gaze of Jesus Christ and he finds out that he's looked away from the provision that everyone told him was the only way he could get to where he needed to get, but he couldn't get there. He had to be in when the water stirred. And as it was then, so it is today. I've been there one time myself, and it's a 30-foot drop from the edge of that pool to the top of the water. When your legs don't work, how many know you're you're not going to shove yourself off the edge. I need someone to help me. I need someone to help me. And then walks Jesus. And he unhides the fact that he doesn't need that pool. He can look to another place. In John chapter 6, he unhides the hunger of people. In John chapter 7, he unhides the thirst. And he said, I am the bread of life. I will bring in you a fountain of living water. And he unhides again, and, and their gaze suddenly is shifted. In John chapter 9, he meets a nameless blind man that we don't know. And it's one of my new very favorite chapters. <laughs> they all are, I think. And it says he comes and finds him after he's rejected and pushed out because no one's had a conversation with him that matters. And it's the, one of the only other times that the word worship is used in the Bible. And that this man, after Jesus had spit in the dirt, made mud and rubbed it on his eyes, and he said, now go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he does, and as he does, he's able to see. And then he becomes interrogated by three groups of people throughout the ensuing hours. It could have been as many as six or eight hours. He's brought from one place to another, and no one asks him the question that matters. No one asks him anything that really matters to him. No one asks him, how did it feel to sit blind all your life by the side? 
And now you can throw aside the beggar's coat and garment, and you're not an outcast. You're not in the margin. No one asked him, what was it like to see? No one asked him, brother, I guess the first thing you actually saw was water, wasn't it? And he would nod his head, and he said, previously you had tasted, touched, and smelled, but you had never seen it. But today, for the first time, the first thing he would see was that glistening water with which he had rinsed his eyes, and the sun glistening off the surface and sparkling. And in amazement as he stared, then they began this first interrogation before he can even enjoy his eyesight. All this time, he thought, if I could just see, I wouldn't be off by the side. I wouldn't be pushed aside. But after three interrogations, it says they put him out of the temple. The very next verse, it says, Jesus came and found him there. He says, do you know, do you believe in the Son of Man? He says, I don't know who he is. Watch these words. They've never been more poignant. Him who you see and with whom you are speaking is he. And he's saying, I'm it. But he phrased it that way. He said, the person you're speaking with and the one you see. See, he had heard his voice earlier, but it's clear he didn't recognize it. But when he did, the very next thing he says, and he worshiped. Only place that Jesus in the flesh accepted that. You know that? That guy. But there it is. As we go constantly through Scripture and And back to the woman with the issue of blood, there's a phrase that when she presses through the crowd and Jesus is pressed upon and she, I I can see her almost falling forward. As a matter of fact, I wrote a, a song that said, one last hope and one last try, the courage to reach out one more time, to be made whole. And without even the strength to call out his name, she just closed her eyes and reached out anyway. And she touched the hem of his garment. Jesus said, someone touched me. Power, virtue's gone out of me. And they said, You're, you've lost your mind, his disciples said. Can't you see this crowd? You've got a thousand people touching you. He says, no. And it stopped. And he turned and her eyes fell on her. And there's a phrase there in the English in Luke version that says, and when she saw she had not escaped notice. The word is and when she saw, which means hidden, when she saw she was not hidden, she fell at his feet. Beloved, when we meet a Savior who says you don't have to hide, and you hear his voice, that is the moment, that is the moment where we will make a decision about worship. What is the source of my worth? The moment that he steps into our hiding place and says, you don't have to hide there. You don't have to run from that. My heart is heavy today. Perhaps like no other time, I have felt the weight and push. I don't want to be dramatic or sensational, but I have not felt the weight or push of... of, of just ministry and life like this in a long time, perhaps like never before. I'm watching culture around us. I'm hearing the cries for hope. Um, And I come to this morning with a sense of holy hesitation. And I'm going to tell you, to say this, I'm trying to decide on the series title that I'm landing on because... There's the phrase that we use, Pastor Bill mentioned it last week, Bill Wilson, and that is the elephant in the room. And that phrase, colloquial reference in our culture, means 
these very large and looming unmentionable things that are clearly obvious to everyone but no one wants to talk about. Thus the phrase, the elephant in the room. Well, beloved, can I tell you that we're living in a day not with an elephant in the room, but we're running from an elephant stampede and pretending we're out for a morning jog, trying to stay ahead of the stampede. But we've got to stop and we've got to turn and we've got to face it because redemption won't happen if we don't. I don't know that I ever thought that in my lifetime, in other words, I, I've preached it, I saw what happened to Jesus when he preached hope for people and the very people to whom he reached with redemption and hope and eternal life were the people who crucified him. It's almost unimaginable, the shift, what happens really in just days, a mentality and a shift. I was aware of that principle and I've preached it for years. But I didn't anticipate, I don't know, I didn't see coming the pushback from culture right now where in no matter it would seem whatever best effort we may make to try and reach out with redemption, it is seen and turned as rejection and, and hate. The gospel that I've been, I've been reading and following and, and little by little... <laughs> There is this progression, and by the way, when you hear that word progressive, uh, even if it's used in politics, I don't, I'm not, I'm using it in a sociological term, but progression, that means in little steps. See, right now, if I said, there's truth and over there is not, no one's going to go, oh, I'm going that way. Some will. But typically what happens is ever so little, progressively, one, two degrees at a time, we're bent and we're pushed to go that way. The gospel in circles night now is, is being referred to as hate speech and hate language. In the next couple of weeks, I'm going to deal with the elephants, some of them. There's perhaps no greater element, elephant that we're dealing with today in culture than the reality of, of same-sex relationships and same-sex marriage, homosexuality as an identity. You will never hear me say for the hundreds of times, hundreds, that I have sat with an individual or individuals who have embraced that identity. You'll never hear me say um, a homosexual lifestyle. I'll never forget a, a conversation with my brother in the 80s. He died of AIDS in 1994. And I'm not telling his business. It's his story. Um, he fought with, struggled with, and identified um, uh, with a homosexual identity. As, um, and, and we all wrestled together with the, with the truth. In 1987, I think, was the first time I preached where I just said, there's coming in the days ahead where our nation and, and law will make a provision for, the term wasn't same-sex then, that just was popularized probably in more in the last 20 years, but wasn't around then, but um, homosexual marriage. Now, you see, even when you bring it up, there's a tension that fills the room. There's a tension that fills the room. Because 
Um, where are we going to go with this? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to push the pause button on that. I don't have an interest this morning, it's coming, in laying out what the Bible says specifically about it because that doesn't do any good if you don't understand the backdrop of the painting that we're trying to paint. And the backdrop of the painting is a God who has come to redeem us. Uh, without telling you all of my engagements and the reasons why it's even accelerated or amplified in the last couple of weeks in this issue, there are some things that have happened within our larger denomination that really doesn't concern you here in this room, but it's given occasion for this conversation to gain a whole new centrality. And I want you to know that I have never done anything differently than I'm doing this morning. I don't approach people. Now, when I say this, see, there's almost no way to get there from here because the, the popular cultural notion is, why are you attacking a person for the way, for who they are? For who they are. And I always say, not with an absence of conviction or not with any sense of uncertainty, but with a sense of holy hesitation approaching people because there's no more, there's no greater personal disruption than to encounter an individual who has embraced an identity about themselves and present them with the thought or consideration that that is not God's provision for their identity or for their personal wholeness. You can come barging in if you want, but all you'll do is chase people away. And if you're not prepared to receive that reaction, then go home and fast and pray and get ready. Don't be caught off guard. Don't be offended. Don't be beaten down. But understand what the Word of God says. And what I'm, what I'm discovering, even with pastors, I've told you I administrate a, a site with about 4,000 of um, um, online with about 4,000 pastors. And beloved, can I say this with hesitation and with no sense of self-adulation? I am so greatly concerned, and, and these are the elephants, that we don't understand what, thing, what biblical terms like grace, truth, truth, love, and mercy are. They have been co-opted and nuanced by culture in our language for the 2,000 years and in our culture today, if you put all of those words together, grace, uh, love, grace, mercy, um, if, if you put all of those together and say, these represent the niceness of God. We use them, oh, that person is merciful. That person is gracious. Oh, all you need is love. You know, we've been more informed in our theology by a 1967 Beatles song than we have scripture. All you need is love, love, love. Love is all you need. Now, I'm going to say something that will be excerpted and will be a soundbite. All, all you don't need is love. We just got to love them. We've just got to love them. You say, we don't have to love them. We absolutely have to love them. But, beloved, part of these elephants, I'm sort of giving you a projection here, I guess. I don't, I, I, I don't know of a time when I've been more anxious about walking out to speak and knowing where do you start the conversation. 
Because there's no way that this won't be excerpted and phrases snatched and it will show up in other places on social media. Here's another gay bashing pastor and nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing further from the truth. But do you understand what it says? For God so loved the world, that's all he did. He just loved. No, he gave his son. Beloved, the tragedy is that we've made love, grace, and mercy. You see, in, in, in the book of Mark chapter 2, Amanda, you don't have that verse. Mark chapter 2, Jesus makes a metaphorical reference to sin and hurting people because it says, why are you hanging out with sinners? And Jesus says, the sick need a doctor. And by inference, he says, sin is a disease of the soul. See, that's one of the words we study here. Sin is finding my identity anywhere but God. That's all it is. Nothing more, nothing less. I'm finding my identity outside of God. It's a Bible term, so we need to go back to the document of origination to, to find what the term means, rather than letting it be defined by popular notion or bumper sticker. Sin does affect our behavior, and so there are things that are sin. But sin is not the list of your top ten whatever you think they are. It's changed, by the way. <laughs> When I was growing up, always at the top of sin was smoking, smoking and drinking and going to dance halls. I grew up in the southeast in small Pentecostal churches. I never knew what a dance hall was, but they did. So I thought, surely a dance hall will be in hell. You know, you couldn't do that. And it's just, they would list the sins and say, if you fix, if you just create this list to stare away from, watch this, then you've dealt with the sin problem. You have not. You've become a Pharisee. Because you can deal with the list sins with an S and never deal with the problem of sin. That is the condition on the planet. You see, because Jesus said, this, there's a word, as a matter of fact, my precious mom, 94 years old, one of the things that is I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek will help her, will probably be the cause of her leaving the world not too long, is sepsis. Sepsis. That's where her system becomes septic. Now, we know that word in another form. We don't use that one so much, but we use another word, and it's a kind of ointment we put on. It's an antibiotic or an, or an antiseptic. And I thought this week, uh, this week when Jesus described sin in terms of a disease, how we have taken love, grace, mercy, those things, listen to me, beloved, and we have converted them into an anesthetic. An anesthetic numbs you instead of an antiseptic. And we've offered people that, and all we need to do is love. And I've gotten into these discussions at great length, and, and I see them increasing, and I see our students and our young people. By the way, for about a year and a half, not too long ago, I served in the role of youth pastor, student pastor here. I enjoyed it. And the questions that came from them, it, with deep sincerity, well, Pastor Tom, why do church people hate gay people? And I said, nothing could be further from the truth. See, but culture, the voice of culture, is informing our children that the church hates gay people. You may, find, you may find pockets of it, and you may find Christian people. By the way, here's a brand new synthesis that I've not, I just presented it to pastors. Please hear me. The research when I teach on conflict resolution, 
Research shows that 80% of people, 80% of people in this room, listen to me, deal with conflict with avoidance and or anger. Avoidance or anger. And that's not a healthy way. There's a biblical path, and I've taught on it extensively. It's one of my favorite things to talk about. And just this week, as I was really praying about this, I really think it might have been a Holy Spirit moment that I don't think you deal so much with hatred as much as you're dealing with people with uncertainty that don't know how to handle the conflict, and so they deal with it with avoidance or anger. It's not that they hate the individual. They become suspicious of the inadequacy of their own faith. And so it's just, it, it becomes just an awkward moment. We do not hate people. We offer hope for people. But watch this. When you read scripture, you'll find that love comes with grace. You'll find that love travels with truth. You'll find, first in, for an example, it says, um, um, the example in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, I think. And it says, and because they were deceived, they will be judged. They talk about the end of the age because they did not love truth. Beloved, it's not just enough. to The love of God is the doorway. The love of God is the intersection. The love of God is the, what, please hear this, the love of God is the opportunity to begin to love what God loves. I just want to talk to you this morning. The two terms that God uses in scripture to most greatly define himself are holy in the Old Testament. Everybody say holy. And as you come to the New Testament, it's love. So the fair question is, we don't want to read the Old Testament because we met a holy God. We come to the New Testament, we meet a God of love. And Scripture uses these, uh, these, these indicators. So we want to leave behind holy without love. But you can't separate the God who is holy is the God of love. Please hear me. The word holy is from a Hebrew term, and it's a mouthful of words. It means the sphere of the divine, free from moral decay or, 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 um, or influence. Thus, he is complete. Here it comes, lacking nothing. That's a mouthful of words that don't matter. But here's the point. God, see, every, every molecule, this desk, this bottle, the water in it, uh, drew your shirt, your shoes, the little altar rail, the edge of the stage, this, it's all take shape and form because at a, an atomic and molecular level, molecules hang on one another and they assemble themselves and there's nothing that has substance outside of one thing depending on another. But God who created time, space, and matter doesn't live inside it. He doesn't depend on it. See, God by his own declaration, is the only, I don't have an existential essence. You can't call him a being. No matter what words we use, they don't work. And he said that. He said, go ahead, use the best words you can. And, and, and we go ahead and take a shot. And he allows us to do that, but nothing fully or completely describes him until you come to this word holy. 
And in a discussion with some theologians about 10 years ago when I was writing on holy, I said, the best substitution word for the word holy is W-H-O-L-E, a God who is whole and complete, lacking nothing. And because he is whole and complete, lacking nothing, he can make me whole, me whole and you whole. There's not whole Whole, W-H-O-L-E, is not found any other place than the one who is holy. The words are really functionally synonymous. Is everybody with me on that? So when Paul writes, for instance, in Acts, um, I worship God. He doesn't need our worship. Matter of fact, he doesn't need anything. In Deuteronomy 6, the Jewish Shema, the Lord our God is one. He doesn't need a thing. But he loves us and receives our love. Now, that holy God who is whole and complete, listen to me. I'm going to have you repeat this. I'd normally put this on the screen, but I'm just walking out and talking. And what I have on paper so far, I haven't even gotten to. Would everybody say holy love? That's the two sides to the coin of God's existence. If you don't have one, you're in trouble. If you have a holy God without love, you have a God that's looking to crush us. If you have love without holy, then you have a God who can do nothing for you. Well, I'm going to get to that. You see, holy is the essence of love. Love is the function of holy. If you present holy without love... You're messing it up. And that's why Jesus offered the Sermon on the Mount, because the Pharisees were offering holy without love. He came to say, for God so loved the world that he's come to call you out of hiding and present you with a possibility for wholeness that you presently have not experienced or even considered. That's that God who calls us to personal wholeness. That personal wholeness that he's calling to is not just a sexual identity that won't bring the wholeness as God's word clear. It can be anger. It can be addiction, habits, brokenness, lust. Those things are there. But God calls us to a place of wholeness. And beloved, my concern is that love is being so miscommunicated and overstated that it is presenting a gospel that can go and sit right with a person in their imprisoned cell of brokenness and sin, but has no power to open the door and let them out. Would you hear me? Now, with that in mind, let me give you a a, a little bigger picture. And by the way, if I've ever wanted to know your questions or thoughts on a matter, it will be in this series. It's easy to get a message to me. We have a text uh, number that I've forgotten that uh, maybe you can get that up, Amanda, where you can text your questions. You can email me. It's simple. Tom at New Hope Online. There, if you'll text your questions to that number right there. You don't have to text hello. Just text your questions. And, And that will work. Or you can do Tom at New Hope Online. Tom at New Hope Online. You don't meet anyone anymore who does not have a family member or close friend who identifies um, uh, in a same-sex relationship or uh, a gender manner. Let me skip that page. You'll get that page later. (laughs) 
First John chapter 2, verse 1. Okay? Take notes. Put them on your phone. Put them somewhere. Um, I always offer to send notes, but because these are still so fractal, I won't send them to you yet. Actually, I will, but I'll fix them. It may take me a day or two. Usually I do it if I get the text message on Sunday. I, I just shoot them right out to you. But give me a couple days. But if you'd like the notes, I'll send them. First John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate. Everybody say advocate. advocate. Earlier in Brenda's prayer, she mentioned a courtroom that assembles in judgment. And this word advocate here is the ancient term. We've talked about it. Just a few months ago, we talked about it. It is the term that represented in the ancient judicial system what we would probably refer to as a defense attorney. We love those kind of shows, you know, the law and order shows and courtroom shows. There, there's any new series running at any moment at any time where the guy is brought into the courtroom, the evidence, he's been arrested. Watch this. The evidence has been presented, the indictment issued, and it launches into, and because of that, you're going bursting through the back door in some sort of dramatic fashion comes the defense attorney. Wait a minute, Your Honor. And it's usually in these Hollywood things, some bigger than life personality. A real popular one right now that Brenda watches a lot is called Bull, you know, and, um, and she, and then, you know, dramatic fashion, wait a minute, Your Honor, well, wait for what? And, and I'm going to paraphrase here. I'm here to represent a potential outcome not presently under consideration. What is that? That my client is innocent. An advocate, that's what they do. When you read this verse of Scripture, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Right now, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If you would read in the book of Revelation, what we want, but a couple of other Scripture from Romans. Listen to Romans chapter 3, 8, verse 34. Who is the one who condemns? Remember the courtroom scene? Christ Jesus is he who died, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, here it comes, who intercedes. Intercession is the act of an advocate who steps in between and calls forth an outcome not presently under consideration. At the death, resurrection, and the ascension, Jesus ascended. See, many people here don't know the Bible, and I don't assume people do anymore. But in the opening chapter of Acts, Jesus ascends into the cloud. I believe that narrative picks up in Hebrews 8 and 9 and in Revelation 4 and 5 where John looks and he says, And I saw a lamb, the Son of God, step up and suddenly step right in between, right next to the throne of God. You see, the Bible says that he is ever before the Father, perpetually. And it's not as if God needs to wake, Jesus needs to wake up every day and say, hey, Father, I'm here one more day. No, but in perpetuity, his blood pleads. Intercession is the word plead as an illegal term to file a pleading. And the pleading ongoingly is this. Lord, Father, humanity crashed and burned at the garden. They did everything wrong. 
They walked right away from the wholeness that may otherwise be theirs, and they sought it in every other place, and they deserve nothing but death. The book of Romans and Corinthians and Ephesians will tell us, and Galatians tell us. But he says, I'm here to step in between the judgment that should be issued, and I'm here as an advocate to call forth an outcome not presently under consideration by the demands of the law. And because of my blood, I can file the pleading, and I ask for redemption for man. Mankind, and the Bible says the Father gladly grants it. That word redeem is a big word. It means, to, it means to bring out the very essence. It means to ransom, to save, to rescue. But it also means to bring out the essence of a thing. As I've said here a thousand times, like when you take a coupon good for $1.99 on a box of cereal to Walmart and you lay it down and you redeem the coupon. And that coupon has intrinsic value. The Word of God says that every human being was created with the image of God stamped on their soul. And God says, if you will bring that back to the right, to the issuer, not Walmart, but the presence of God, I will bring out the full value of everything that's been stamped on your soul. But you won't find it anyplace else. You won't find it in material things, in greed, lust, pornography, selfishness, anger, or same-sex relationships. The Bible says that. I can't preach anything other than that. I will be dealing with, there's about 12 or 15 arguments that have been now asserted by what's called affirming Christians. In other words, the argument doesn't come from without, outside the church. You can go online anywhere right now and find a presentation of the Word of God that affirms that. I think, I think, I want to say this in gentleness, no snarky condescension, no satire, no joking, no nothing. I think there is no more dangerous thing than that. To allege that the love of God can meet you where you are, comfort you, and leave you in your brokenness. But we have a Savior before the throne of God who is calling forth the possibilities, not just for all of mankind, but for you and you and you and you and me. He knows my name. My name is tattooed on the hands of the Father, the prophet would write. My name is ever before him. My name is written in the Lamb's book of life. My name is included in a place of promise. He knows my name. And Jesus is not there just for all of humanity, but for us as individuals, calling forth the possibilities as he says, Father, there's possibilities stamped on the heart of John And I'm here today to call that forth from the throne of God. Well, the good news is on the other end of the equation, John 15 happens. And it's about the Holy Spirit. When the helper, John 15, 26. When the helper, everybody say helper. That is the same exact word, advocate. Watch. He says, when the advocate comes, the Holy Spirit who I will send to you from the Father. That is the spirit of what? Unhiddenness. You see, Jesus went around in those 21 chapters and in every other gospel passage, and he found people hiding, trembling in an identity that was so far beneath and just hiding from God. And God stepped up and he says, you, you, you don't have, come here. 
You don't have to do that. God has a better way, a better plan. He's come to redeem you. Watch. The love of God brought me to you, but the wholeness of God will lead you away from here. A God that is the God of love and he is is also a God that is whole and complete. Many weeks ago, I used something we use in marriage counseling, the relational pyramid. Amanda, I didn't ask you to have that ready. If you can find it, that would be a great reference. But if the top of that pyramid, there's four stations. And if the top is intimacy and really a healthy expression of love, the foundation of that pyramid is individual emotional health. And everyone look at me. Individuals that are most healthy and personally whole have the greatest capacity to love in a redeeming fashion. I'm going to show you how that works in marriage. If a person is dysfunctional, broken, and I used the last time, and I'll just use it again because it is an unfortunately easy thing to go to, but they're in the hard grip of addiction, they will use the words like we use, like everybody uses, I love you, but they don't know what love means because love is typically used as simply a tool to manipulate the object of that love to get what they need for themselves. But once I find God, for example, once there's a sense of individual wholeness, Doug, I can love in a fashion that doesn't demand, that's not coming after you just to give me back. I know I'm going to get something back, but I'm loving with a view to redemption. That's why I include in the wedding ceremonies an adaptation of Ephesians chapter 5, that says, as, and part of the closing words of the covenant I've written in the vows is, as I partner with God in the, in the redemption our love will bring. You see, love that is offered by a person that is broken is a selfish love. But that individual who is most greatly whole and, and, and not just coming at you and saying, I I need you for what you do for me. But no, I'm first and foremost committed to every possibility that's in your life. I'm not here to dominate you. I'm not here to rule you. I'm not here to manipulate you. I'm here to bring out, I partner with God in redeeming his intentions that he stamped on your soul before the foundation of the world. And when I say I love you, what that means is I've come to partner with God and to bring out everything that's in you that he may have planted there. And that's a lifelong journey and I'm looking forward to that exploration. You see that is healthy and whole love. Well when you come to a God who alleges to be the fountainhead or epicenter of wholeness and then he would dare to say out of that wholeness I love you. It is why he can send a son. It is why the son can show up and say I love you. I don't need you to save me, rescue me or keep me alive. In fact I'm going to go further and die for you to summon you from the place of brokenness, and that's what love means. A love that does not redeem is a broken, selfish, dysfunctional love. God offers that part of himself as a transaction point to be able to reach in. Love will find you in my hiding place, but a holy God leaves you away from it leads you and says, come, there's so much more you can know. So he sends a helper, a paraclete. Now I want you to watch the poetry. A paraclete, who, a spirit of unhiddenness, who proceeds from the Father, 
he will testify about me, and you will testify also because you've been with me from the beginning. John 16, just a few verses later, verse 7. But I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage, Jesus is speaking, that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper, that's the same word again, the, Holy, the advocate, won't come to you. Watch what happens here. He won't come to you, but I will send him to you. A few verses later, John 16, 13. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all unhiddenness, all truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears. He's saying, I'm hearing it from, where's he hearing it from? I'm hearing it from the son before the throne. As a matter of fact, I'll come back and finish these verses. But watch this. The Holy Spirit is here And it says he doesn't speak of his own initiative. Look at me, beloved. Did you know the Holy Spirit was involved in creation? Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. It says, and the Spirit of God hovered over this void face of the deep, this nothingness. And see, and it says, when the Father speaks, this is what I'm about to say to you. Theologians don't argue over it anymore. I mean, there's just no argument. God spoke, but it was the Spirit of God that acted. God said, let there be light, but every indication, it was the Spirit of God that said, I'll be right back. There's light. What's next? And he says, then he made the sun, the moon, the whatever, and and it was the Holy Spirit. The psalmist would tell us, it says, by the Spirit of your mouth, ruach, by the Spirit of your mouth, the planets, the stars, the universe was formed. The Spirit of God doing what? Transforming nothing into something. But God speaks first and the Spirit acts. Jesus describes him in the same fashion. He says, by the way, he doesn't say anything on his own. He just repeats what comes from the throne. And when I get to the throne, Jesus was saying, I'm going to be interceding. I'm going to call forth things from the Father and say, Father, John, I'm going to pick on you again because I did already and everybody remember. Father, I'm calling forth stuff for John, one of your children. He has been born again, purchased by my blood. And I'm calling forth today healing in my brother's body. In Jesus' name. And in mine, I don't say Jesus' name, in my name and by my blood. And the Holy Spirit here on earth. Now watch, here comes the phrase, watch. Jesus is in heaven before the throne of God interceding on behalf of humanity. I'm going to say it again. Jesus is in heaven before, before the throne of God interceding on behalf of mankind. The Holy Spirit is on earth before the throne of your heart interceding on behalf of the Father. What do you mean on behalf of the Father? He is calling forth from you the Father's will that has been unleashed through the blood of Jesus Christ. This is somewhat a complex point of theology, but we're going to get it. We've got to get it. It's at the foundation of what we do because right now today, what's the date? March 14th at 11.25, Jesus is continuing. He stands in perpetuity before the throne of God, calling forth the possibilities of redemption from the throne of God. And the Father says, yes, that's good. He's before the throne of God on behalf of mankind, the Holy Spirit that's here. And he hears what what Jesus says, and he shows up to John, and he says, John, I'm here before the throne of your heart on behalf of the Father, and I got some good things to tell you today that will transform your life. Watch the language in 2 Corinthians 3. Watch. 
Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. Freedom. Did you know the test of truth is freedom? The test of truth is not comfort. The test of truth is freedom. Love and truth travel together. Grace and truth travel together. You can't separate them. I pray in the weeks ahead because we're going to revisit some of the terms of our faith that I don't know that we understand. I don't know if we understand why confession and repentance are such a wonderful grace of God in our life. But it's there. It's there so that we can be free. Free. I can't preach another gospel. I cannot preach another gospel. I can't preach another gospel. And I will stand up to those voices as Paul did from within the church as he says, I don't really have a lot to say to those outside it, but to those inside it, I have a lot to say. And those who would take that gospel and turn it and say, there's a God who will love you, meet you right where you are, but is powerless to affect your circumstances. That is not the gospel. Watch this. Second Corinthians, the last verse says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed. One of two times it's used in the New Testament. Into the same image from glory to glory. Watch this phrase at the bottom. Well, how does he do that? How does he do that? He gets it from the Lord through the Spirit. That's what that phrase means. You see, Paul, the apostle who wrote this, would pick up where John and Jesus left off when Jesus said, he doesn't say anything on his own. So the good news is, John, when the Holy Spirit impresses something on your heart, he didn't just show up today and make it up. He doesn't say anything on his own. He says, I want you to know that the same way that I acted, John, this is the Holy Spirit speaking, that the same way I acted at creation, that the Father spoke and I acted, and what was formless and void took on substance, and there was life and matter. There was sun and moon and water, created things, trees and animals, John, that when God speaks, I I just act on on what I hear and say, this is what he said, this is what I'm going to do. So when the Holy Spirit shows up and he begins to imprint on your heart a new place of hope and promise, he didn't just show up today and make it up. It came from the throne of God by the blood of Jesus Christ, straight to your heart, delivered by the Holy Spirit. Watch this, because redemption without transformation Excuse me, a transformation without redemption has no power. Please hear me. It is the blood of Jesus and the cross of Christ that has given power to our salvation and deliverance. Watch this. I want to say it again. Transformation without redemption has no power. Redemption is the power of transformation. That is, the blood of Jesus Christ is the power that facilitated the Holy Spirit in the upper room, that facilitates the Holy Spirit in the act of transformation. I'll say it for a third time. Transformation without redemption has no power. But redemption without transformation has no promise or purpose. Redemption without the hope of transformation, it'll come up and and sit beside you in your jail cell Say, I love you, and I'm here. Great. But your quality of life isn't going to change a bit. I don't have the power to open the door of your prison. I only have the power to get myself inside and sit here, or better yet, stand outside the bars and say, I love you. But what if? 
What if there was the power to open those doors? The other scripture I left off is a powerful, and I'm going to offer it and quit. I know it's a bit long this morning, but I want you to look with me and go home and read it. I won't teach from it. I'm just going to start you down the path. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. It's a lengthy passage of scripture. We'll see if I read them all or not. But Paul, an apostle of Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus, he greets the church. Grace to you peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed. That means to speak well concerning. It's the word from which we get eulogy. And when you use it about God, it's usually translated praise be to, because when I'm speaking well towards God, I'm offering praise. Blessed. Praise be to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here comes the second time. Who has blessed us. That means who has spoken well concerning us. It's what the word literally means. With every spiritual blessing, that is spirit, actually Gordon Fee, my favorite theologian, says that word should be a capital S, with every spirit blessing. Wait a minute. It starts with the Father and does just what Jesus says. It comes to us straight through the Spirit of God. He says it's spoken in the heavenlies, delivered by the Spirit of God. I love that. He lives in you, beloved. He lives in you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. See that two, those two words stuck at the end of the verse? It's a new sentence that begins the next verse. Watch what happens. All you need is love. Love is all you need. Okay, here we go. In love, I love the way it's stuck there, by the way. Because we have come to relate to it as if in love, that's the stopping point. Love is not the stopping point. Love is not the destination. Love is the starting point delivered. For God so loved the world, he gave. He said, I'm going to start something, and it starts with love. But that is not the destination. Love's going to take me to grace. Love's going to take me to truth. Love's going to lead me to mercy. All the things that I need to come out of my hiding and brokenness, love delivers that to me. But he doesn't just say, I love you. I'm God. It was nice visiting with you. I'm out of here. Love does something. In love, he predestined us as adoption through sons, as, to, as sons through Jesus Christ himself, according to his kind intention. A love, in love, this came to, comes to the praise of his glory, of his grace. In love, he brings grace. I watch that. In love, verse 7, we have redemption. See, I'm sticking in love at the beginning of every one of these verses. In love, we have redemption. It didn't stop at in love. Love does something. And beloved, I don't do things like I'm about to do, but my brothers here know I love them. We have our true purpose brothers sitting here who, are found, who have found and are finding freedom and liberty. Pastor Chip didn't just show up and say, hey, guys, I've walked where you've walked. I can identify, bro. I've been there. I've lived in the grip of it, and that is his testimony. And I'm here to love you. We're going to give you a place to live and a place to eat, and you can pretty much just go on in your misery from day to day, bask in it, bathe in it, because this is it. We're going to give you a place to live. We're going to give you food, and we love you. But the quality of life or the essence of who you are 
is not going to be transformed in any fashion because we believe that the destination is love. No, beloved, the love that puts the Savior at the throne of God is the love that delivers transformation in real time to every broken soul. You see, there's this hesitance. Maybe I'm just perceiving something that's not there, but I don't think so. I've been up since 5.30 pushing back on what I feel is, is just this push of culture because, again, we're at a place no matter, almost no matter how I preach it or say it, it's going to be termed, I've already had it happen, and it will happen again, and, and really, I'm okay with it happening. I'm not okay with the gospel being marginalized and being misrepresented to people. I'm not. I'm not. You see, here's the deal. You see where I'm going through this? In love, we have redemption. At the end of verse, in love, we get grace. Grace. Grace is not the static niceness of God. It's a dynamic force that pushes against sin. Read Romans chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. It pushes back. It pushes back. All of us have a hole in our soul. It's the work of darkness. One of them in mine was made by a Cub Scout leader at nine years old who after he molested me for a year, said, don't tell your parents because they'll put you in a mental institution because you're not a normal boy. This doesn't happen to normal boys, so you're not one of them. I believed him. And it created a hole in my soul for affirmation and acceptance, just to be included and be viewed as normal. But I lived with the absolute convinced reality that there was a hole here, and I was damaged good. So I had to not let anybody see that hole in my soul ever. And I had to run faster and higher. So my adapted response was my worth is going to be found in who I am, in what I do, not who I am. And it didn't quit after I entered the ministry. I had to write better songs, preach better sermons. I had to be before that a better cop. I went into what I thought was perhaps the most elite special ops unit in the military. And when I came out of high school, and, and I was going to be faster and better than everybody. And I became a team leader uh, way early on at a rank that was beneath what a team leader needed to have to be a team leader. But I was going to outrun everybody. I was going to outdo everybody. And it didn't quit when I entered the ministry at 24 years old. I had to preach a better sermon, write a better song. That whole OCD thing would wear everybody out around me because I didn't want them to see the hole. I'm thrust into a world of speaking and preaching in a culture where education, academic degree, and intellectual pursuit and realization is an idol. And I have none of those. No formal education. And my whole of my soul is pulsing, saying, you can't let them see it. You can't know. And so I'm, I'm fighting and fighting. And at 29 years old, a precious man with two degrees, earned degrees, doctorates, walked into my office. And he said, what do you fear the most? And I knew what he was talking about. I knew he wasn't asking about the death of my children or my wife or parents or something like that. I knew what he was after. And I said, I struggle with the fear that I would walk out to preach the word of God. And the breath of God would not breathe on it. And he looked at me and he said, but he does. And he said, son, 
You need to know. And then he just affirmed that. But he said, I want to tell you, if you don't quit worshiping what you don't have on your wall as opposed to what he's placed in your soul, he may take the one and leave you longing for the other. And that was a significant leap forward where I said, I don't care. I can't fill that hole. Only you can. And so I write songs about it and I sing about it. And here's the thing. When I sit and I talk with precious brothers and sisters, my heart is broken because I know the hole in the soul. Not theirs maybe, but I know what it's like to have that saying, you can never be complete if you don't have this, if you don't have that, or if this is not realized. You can never be made whole. And then this loving God has the audacity to show up and say, I can make you whole, independent. We had not about that. It's got nothing to do that. I am the only source that has the power to make you whole. What you think will make you whole won't you're looking in the wrong place you're believing the same whispered lie of the serpent and you hide in your brokenness and I'm standing here calling your name I will never preach another gospel than that I've been the recipient of that I have been recipient of grace that found its way into my soul and pushed back And filled in a hole, not with those things. He didn't give me degrees or acceptance or affirmation. He gave me himself. And until we believe that the God of love is the God of holy that can fill the sufficiency of any human being, including a person who's come to believe that their wholeness can only be found by embracing the identity and entering a relationship with a person of the same sex. I can't, I, can't, I can't sit on the side of that. I can say I love you. I do. I mean that. I'm not a gay basher or homophobic. I feel our church is on the edge of revival. I've watched it for eight months escalating and escalating and escalating and escalating. This is and will be a house of transformation, not where we preach the platitudes of a gospel and a deistic God that's out there somewhere just watching but not interfacing. This is a house of encounter where you will hear and receive the love of God and be touched by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the healing of the human body. We believe in the healing of the human soul because we believe at the end of the day, only God has the power to make us whole. Nothing else, nothing else, nothing else. And I'm not picking issues. Stand up and I'll stop. Come on. I I, I didn't come with the anticipation for this message to be one where people were going to cheer, clap, and shout me down. Twenty years ago, a pastor of a congregation of 5,000, a Baptist church, a precious man, he looked me in the face and he said, Tom, I love God, I love the gospel. He said, but I'm so glad I'm not starting ministry right now like you young guys are. He said, you're facing an increasing world of complexity. 
and spiritual argumentation that I didn't have to deal with. And he says, I'm praying for you. Praying for all of you. We live in that world. God has healed the whole of my soul to the point that the tears you've seen running down my face all day aren't because I, I fear not being affirmed by people who hold a different opinion. The tears you see running down my face are born of experience of God who has the capacity to make you whole. A God who not only loved me and redeemed me, but when he announces who he is, he says, I'm the God who is and was and is to come. I am the God who is who meets you in your is. I am the God who heals what you was. <laughs> I've redeemed you. And I'm the God that's going to be with you in what is to come. You will never be alone. You will never be choiceless. You will never be powerless. Today's talk would have been well more well served if I could have invited you three or four at a time to sit with me at my kitchen table. I always want to preach like that. I'm good at that. Father, there are people in the room that have holes in their soul. There have been, some have been inflicted. As a matter of fact, most of them are. They've been hurt, abused, abandoned, lied to, rejected, pushed to the side, left out. <laughs> Many living our lives, and like the blind man, no one's asking us the questions that really matter. And you stand on the edge of our life, dying to have a conversation with us. You stand at the back door of the places where we're kicked out like you did that man. Waiting for him. You went to find him. So you've come to find us today. Oh my goodness. How desperately... The world needs your love. How desperately people need your love. A love that will take them by the hand, meet them where they are, be touched by their infirmities. Your word says, but you just don't soothe them and comfort them in their pain. You walk them out of it and say, but you can be free. Free. Ah. I pray for every brother and sister in this place. Bow your heads, please, and close your eyes. When I ask this question, I am not limiting the scope of this question to homosexual identity or same-sex relationships. I'm going to be one that raises their hand because God is progressively... I've always wondered, by the way, if he leaves just a residue of that hole there where the whispers can show up and touch it. And, and I react just to remember.
But if you're here today, and I don't know what the hole in your soul may be. By the way, I'm not going to ask you to leave where you're standing. I'm not going to ask you to walk out in front of a crowd of people. I just want to pray with you where you are. But I want to ask you this question. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Brenda, come here and help me look so I don't miss anybody. Please, sweetheart. I'm not going to ask for which one. <laughs> I like that key. Hallelujah. you can see. What key? See. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place. Open your eyes, look this way. Watch. Remember this? Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place. Fill the atmosphere. Your glory, Lord, is what our hearts, what my heart longs for. To be overcome by your presence, Lord. Bow your heads. If you're here today and you say, Pastor Tom, that hole in the soul you were talking about, I have one, and it just nags at me all the time. I have one of those. And again, I am not, you heard me say, I'm not talking about one issue. There's 50. But today, Pastor Tom, I need to hear the whisper of the Holy Spirit straight from the throne of God. A whisper from the Holy Spirit that says, I'm making you whole. I am transforming you. I need to hear that today, Pastor Tom. Would you just lift your hand? Oh, yeah, there's lots of us. Me too. Now, those of you that have your hand raised, listen to me. Just lift your head and your face. Just let me make eye contact with you. Receive that, precious. Receive that, my brother. Receive it, son. Sing from that place. Play from that place. Worship from that place. Trust me. You'll get, it'll be like nothing else. Receive that, sweetheart. Receive it. Receive it, my brother. Give me a minute, guys. Just hang with me. You receive that today. This is for you. You receive it. Receive it. Receive it in Jesus' name. Receive it. Help talk to him. Help me. I can't see him. You receive that. Receive it. Receive it in Jesus' name. Receive that. Receive it. It's not an accident you're here today. It's not an accident you're here today. You receive it. Receive it. Receive it. Receive it. Receive it. You walk in it, son. Powerful man of God. And the adversary would do everything in the world to keep you from walking in that. To keep you focused on that, the whole, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Holy Spirit, saturate him now, now. Saturate him now, in Jesus' name. Receive it, receive it, receive it, receive it, receive it. 
receive it, receive it. I see way back there. Receive it. You receive it in Jesus' name. Receive it. Father, there's not a day go by that the adversary doesn't do what he did on the last day in the Garden of Eden. And that is lie and deceive, strike fear in our hearts. And we hide from him. We hide from you, Lord. We hide from each other. I ask that wholeness overflow in this house. God, I ask that when people walk through the door... Holy Spirit, they sense you already here, desperately waiting to meet them in an act of worship, to pour and quench the thirst of their soul, to fill, the, to, to fill that void, Father, up to overflowing. You didn't say you would just quench the thirst. You said it would be a fountain that would overflow. Overflow in us. I love you and praise you. I bless your name. May we receive of it richly today. In Jesus' name. Now, Father, we have a sense that we're at a moment in the life of this congregation and this church, and we don't declare it as if we're somehow religiously or spiritually elite. We simply declare it with the excitement of a child to just embrace all that you might be through us so that we can be all that we can be by your design. Oh, Father, bring that. May this be a house of health, wholeness, salvation, sanctification, and deliverance. In my own life, I want that. Ever increasing. I love you and praise you. Praise you. I ask in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.